Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing, projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today we're back with a special guest, Punk9005. He's got two Addies with classic shades and the iconic clown green hair. In real life, he's known as a rapper, music video director and record producer working with some of the biggest names in hip-hop, Kanye West and Pharrell Williams, and he's a member of Teriyaki Boys and M-Flow, a Japanese hip-hop group that is one of the most iconic and influential hip-hop groups in Asia. He also founded a fashion label with his wife Yoon called Ambush, which many people will know. Please welcome the one and only Verbal Ambush to the show. Verbal, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the intro. I don't do much music video directing, but I have in the past. And um, uh, thanks for noting. No, not no problem <laughs> at all. Well, I'd love to sort of unpack uh, some of this stuff with you as well. But um, of course, your name came up uh, with a couple of the punks that I've interviewed in the past, like uh, Sean Bonner and and I, Derek, who's, who's who's also based in Japan there with you as well. So, um, so shout out to Derek for helping connecting us as well. So, um, so thank you for joining the show. Yeah, thank you. And shout out to Sean and Derek. The Japanese punks. But maybe we could just start off um, with a simple question. Of all the nicknames that you could have chosen, how did you come up with Verbal Ambush? So I was doing music since high school with my friend and partner who I still do music to this day. And we were, you know, very serious about our band. And we even got a record deal in high school. But our parents were super strict. We didn't pursue that dream then. Went on to college and then we reformed again after we graduated. By that time, my friend Taku, who we did the group M Flow with, had already began his career in the music industry. And he asked me, can you just lay down a verse for old time's sake? And I was like, cool. And then when we did, we had this great song, but he was just like, Okay, cool. But what do you want to call yourself? Are you just going to go with your real name? <laughs> and then I just came up off the top of my head. I'm just like verbal, you know, <laughs> and it just stuck with me. Yeah, that's cool. And I guess verbal ambush sounds like it's a rapper's name. Like you're, you're ambushing people with a bunch of your words, right? Well, it's, that just became a moniker because ambush is the brand name that I subsequently began with my wife and partner Yoon. And um, because my rapper name is Verbal, that just became my like a Instagram name, Twitter name. And then like um, together, it sounds really aggressive, like Verbal Ambush. But it's <laughs> maybe it's almost like ASAP Rocky kind of thing, right? Like putting Ambush. So I don't know. It's just it just kind of like uh, goes together. And yeah, that's cool. That's, that's definitely uh, unique and, and definitely yours. Maybe you could start us off with uh, learning a little bit more about um you know, your background and, and history and sort of, you know, everything leading before your sort of crypto journey. Yeah, I'd love to sort of hear it. Sure. So I began my creative career as a rapper in 1999 in Japan. So as I mentioned, this was after I graduated college. Um, when I went to college, I was not doing music or 
trying to pursue anything in the creative space. I was a business and philosophy double major. So I had a brief stint in the finance industry after I graduated. But after I came back to Japan, I, you know, started making demos with my friend Taku, like I mentioned earlier. And then the group M Flow began. And we came out with the record in 1999, first album in year 2000. And, you know, from the beginning, it just kind of it was a wild ride. It just like, you know, took us everywhere. We started releasing albums every year. And that kind of led me to be involved in another group called Teriyaki Boys, which was with Nigo and three other MCs. Uh, and Nigo, as some of you may know, he is the creative director for Kenzo, the brand. And um, he's the guy who started Bathing Ape and now he's doing Human Made. So he uh, has always been in music as well as fashion. So when we began the music group, uh, Teriyaki Boys, uh, he was able to garner a lot of you know attention, not just in fashion, but with the music producers uh, internationally, because back then uh, his brand was really making noise globally. So, you know, that brought Pharrell into the mix, Kanye into the mix, uh, Daft Punk into the mix. And, you know, before we knew it, we were churning out songs. And one of our songs called Tokyo Drift, you know, took us globally. And so that was a wild ride for sure. And um, as I was pursuing my music career, we, Started, you know, playing around with design ideas, me and my wife, Yoon, with whom I was already doing a design team with. And our brand ambush sort of organically happened when we started giving away these pop jewelry pieces that we made for fun that I wanted to wear on stage that I just wanted to give away to friends just to share our creative ideas and creations. And um, one thing led to another. We started sending out packages out of our apartment. And then that got crazier and crazier. So we rented out an office space from where we were sending out the packages. We got a lot of wholesale accounts, not only in Japan, but internationally when all the artists and, you know, talents from all over the world who traveled to Japan and picked up these pieces started rocking them. So, you know, you would see like Kid Cudi, Pharrell, Rihanna, all wearing them on uh, media. So that caught the attention of the buyers. And before we knew it, we were kind of, you know, doing collections. Jewelry led to ready to wear. We started showing in Paris Fashion Week. And yeah, and first it was just a little project out of our office space, but it bloomed into Ambush as a company in 2015. So um, since then, you know, we've been doing collections. So yeah, between my music career and fashion, I was also really, really into tech, namely into the virtual reality space where, you know, I was really, really enamored with the idea of performing in like a game environment, if you will, right? <laughs> so um, the way I got into that was through mocap suits. So I was using motion capture suits to control my avatars on stage when I was performing. And I thought that was the coolest thing. So I had this motion capture suit rental company in 2012. That kind of segued me into, you know, the idea, like I said, of 
controlling avatars in like a virtual space, like a metaverse. And we were like, yeah, that would be cool if we can invite people to come check out our show in a, you know, gamified, fantastical environment. And that was around 2016, 2017. And, you know, by the time we were ready to launch, the pandemic hit. So we really had to do these shows in the uh, metaverse. And then um, that's around the time when I got into NFTs and got into the crypto space, like all the whole Web3 scene, if you will. When I realized that if you have an NFT, you can token gate people into special rooms. You could put wearables on top of it and so forth. So for me, I kind of got into it from the utility. And um, yeah, I've been just uh, into it ever since. Wow. What a sort of career and journey. There's so many elements that I sort of want to go a little bit deeper and unpack with you, but maybe we can sort of break things out. Sort of college, I think you've got another pocket around rap and your music career, another successful sort of stint in sort of fashion with verbal, and then obviously your transition to the Web3 metaverse play as well. But maybe just to go back you know, to your early college days, I think you sort of mentioned you studied philosophy and, and finance and stuff like that. I just wanted to sort of understand, like, you know, I, I'm coming from a bit of an Asian background as well, grew, grew up in, in Australia, cultural barriers and differences and stuff like that there, but obviously influenced by, you know, Western culture uh, as well. So, um, I mean, how did you sort of find moving to the US, studying in the US from Japan? I mean, like, how would you sort of find yourself? Are you you're Korean, Japanese? And when did you sort of move to the US at that time? So I am a third generation Korean in Japan. Um, my grandfather moved to Japan after the war. And then, you know, my father is a second generation Korean. And, um, you know, he was pretty much Japanese, you know, it's like, we're our, the hardware is Korean, but our software is Japanese, you know what I'm saying? So, um, but, <laughs> but by, by my generation, they sent me to international school. So I started meeting people of different nationality and different cultures. So I was sort of like speaking English and Korean and Japanese at the same time when I was younger. And with that environment, you know, my parents, especially my mother, was really, you know, into the idea of getting myself educated in an international setting. So she really wanted us to go, you know, abroad to study. So, you know, it was kind of like a natural progression for me to go to college in the States. But um, going back to the music and the creative aspect, you know, I was always into art. I was always into music from high school, like I said. And I even had a music, uh, excuse me, like a record deal in high school. Uh, you know, I would send demo tapes to different shows, different radio programs. And, you know, before I knew it, I was on some audition show with Taku. And, you know, we won our way into this record deal with now defunct label called For Life. And yeah, it was uh, it, it was super exciting. But obviously, you know, to your point, Asian parents, super strict, rapping in the 90s as a Korean Japanese guy, it was like they weren't having it. So they were just like, you're, you're not, you don't even think about it. So, so you know, for me, you know, I, I understood the context wasn't really there back then anyway. And in retrospect, I'm so glad that I didn't pursue it back then because, you know, I wasn't ready mentally. What year was this, Ambush? Like, uh, how far were you talking about? 
This was in 1992 when I got the record deal. And then I graduated high school in 93. Wow. So who would have been the biggest influences for you back then? Because I'm trying to think back to 92. It was... um... Oh, I was was listening to Gangstar, NWA, you know, um, because my first record that I ever got or the cassette that I ever got was Run DMC. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I'm super old school. Right. I mean, it's a 50th year anniversary of hip hop this year. And I'm sort of like pretty much at the very beginning. So, uh, yeah, I was I was like heavily into the 90s, like East Coast, West Coast hip hop feud uh, scene back in the days. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I was all into that. A bit of Park and Biggie. Yeah, that was that was a really cool time. You know, they the music that they had back then. I'm just sort of taking being back into a time machine. But, you know, my sister's used to always play a lot of R&B and hip hop. I think 92 would have been like Keith Sweat, TLC days as well. Oh, all uh, day, all day. <laughs> I mean, I, I still have those single cassettes with the um, cardboard around it. Uh, I still keep them. And um, yeah, man, I got like Mint Condition, Shy, you know, um, like all the R&B greats, uh, Jodeci. Oh, uh, Jodeci um, is cool. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was your... That was your sort of foray into it, and I, but I sort of feel like that was the um, almost like the golden era for hip hop at that time. So in Asia, it would have been relatively new, right? Like, what was it like in Japan and Korea at that time for for this type of music? So it's interesting that you asked what it was like in Korea because I didn't live in Korea, but there was a lot brewing then, which I found out in uh, college. But um, first in Japan, I don't know if any of you guys listening to this podcast have been to Tokyo, but now, you know, it's just like a Mecca of everything like fashion and like culture and music. And, you know, you'd go there and find tons of records and you would find all this, like obviously anime game IPs, you know, you name it. But even, you know, just a funny story real quick. When I was in college in Boston, I went to Boston college and I'd have friends who are, you know, local rappers. And one of my friends was like, yo, I just released a, you know, a vinyl, like a single. And I just made 5,000 copies. I'm like, great, where can I buy one? He's like, you can't. I was like, why not? It's like, because this Japanese record store called Manhattan Records bought all of them. And they're all in Japan. So it's like, you know, it just goes (laughs) to show that people in Japan appreciate, you know, music of all cultures, especially hip hop. And like people would just devour, you know. Um, these even underground kind of music. So um, anyway, Japan was like, is 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 now like this huge, you know, scene. It's almost like an archive of all cultures. But back when I was in high school, there was just like one rack of hip hop CDs. Like, you know, so, so, I mean, it's like A to Z was like almost my, if I spread my arms, like it just like, that's everything that you can ever get. So for me, like, I'm just like trying to check out every single record, uh, excuse me, the CD covers, seeing, you know, checking out everyone's fashion. And, um, and it was almost like a, like a, you know, a gamble. It's like, so that's how I stumbled into Gangstar because I thought they looked kind of cool, kind of badass. So I was like, okay, let me get this CD. And I just fell in love. And um, that's how I was choosing music. Back then, it was like the golden era, but everything that I got, I felt was like, it was all good. There was no like bad records and everything was very inspirational. 
and so like I think I can't remember what book it was. I think it might have been one of Malcolm Gladwell's books where he starts talking about you know to to get good at something you got to chuck in ten thousand hours. Like, were you rapping a lot and you know freestyling a lot before you dropped your first record uh, and got your first deal, like in high school? Like, how did you sort of you know get into that? So I was obviously really really into the rap, but back then it was very how would you say it like you know, there was a lot of racial tensions going on in the States. So it was very cultural. The The music was very Afrocentric. And for me, listening to it from outside in, or like rather um, from Japan, uh, trying to understand the American culture, I was like, if it was me being a Korean living in Japan, I would think this way, or, you know, this is how I would like to project my lifestyle in that way. You know, so there is the cultural side of me that writes something a little bit conscious. And there's like braggadocio side of me who talks about, you know, girls and partying and stuff like that. So, um, yes, yeah, so I would start writing <laughs> lyrics for fun. And then that's when my to be partner of the group, uh, Taku was like, hey, you know, we're going to do this show at the dance party, which we had like once every two months in the cafeteria of the school. He was like, yeah, you should, you should just jump in and rap for us. So I was like, cool. You know, cause I had all the lyrics that I wrote memorized by my, by heart. So I was just like, yeah, I just, I just like would do that. And then that just, you know, set us off. Like we would just enter all these battle of the bands and like, you know, those high school band competitions and stuff like that. We would do that. And like I said, I would send demo tapes, to all these like, TV shows and radio shows and people would pick us up. Like I would go to those event offices, event companies and, you know, go up to CEOs and it's like, Hey, you should book us. And he's like, Oh yeah, I need a demo tape. He's like, I'll just rap in front of you. And I just rap in front of them. And then they're like, Oh, Oh shit. And then they would just book us at these events. And it was, it, it was wild. I mean, I would never do that now, but like um, back then I was super hungry. Sometimes I had to rap to anybody anywhere. And like, you know, and um, yeah, so that that was in high school. I was like 16 or 17. That's crazy. Well, how did you feel about rapping and, and being Asian? Did did it stop you from anything or prevent any boundaries? Because I, I remember when Eminem came out of the scene and he was like the first, you know, well-renowned sort of white rapper and that was sort of a big thing. Did you sort of feel any difference being Asian in the US rapping and, and trying to build something? So I was in Japan. And the, the uh. immediate wall that I hit was I was rapping in English mainly. And I wasn't aware of this Japanese hip hop scene or if there was, it was very small. So I, you know, being in high school, the only access I had to hip hop music was American. So I would rap and write in English and it would reach like a certain amount of people. But then in order to, you know, gain traction or for people to understand, it had to be in Japanese. So first of all, it was a language barrier. Then there wasn't as much understanding or like foundation for people to understand this culture yet. But what really, really got this culture going was this big dance boom in the early 90s. So there was a show called LMD Dada Dance Koshian. Koshian means like you know, high school baseball. So it's almost like a high school dance competition. So these like TV shows would uh, host these auditions for young dancers, you know, usually played a lot of hip hop. So 
hip hop music was heard on like major airwaves, you know, like uh, on, on major TV networks. But I don't think people really knew what they were listening to. So there were these kind of disconnected, spotty influences of hip hop in Japan, but it wasn't as mature for like a young Asian rapper to, you know, create a career out of, if you will. I didn't really care back then. So I thought we made the best music and we thought we're the hottest shit. So um, we, you know, we were just like just making demos after demos. But yeah, like I said, it was very, very premature. And also with my parents being super against it, we just decided not to pursue it back then. Yeah. In Japan, like I think Japanese culture on very from the outside looking in seems very um conservative, right? You know, the lyrics and the and the songs that you were singing in Japanese, were they controversial at all? Because I think when you listen to the American sort of, you know, West Coast, East Coast gangster rap, I mean some of that's a really you know, controversial, badass lyrics, right? Um, that could sort of stir up a lot of feathers. But uh, what was it like, you know, trying to break through in Japan culturally as well? I mean, was there anything controversial about some of the lyrics you were singing or uh, was it sort of more about girls and partying? So, so for me, when I listened to American hip hop, it was like a window into the American lifestyle because now kids check out social media like Instagram or like, you know, they would they would check out all this, you know, news online and they could see what people are into culturally from all over the world but back then there was no means of that you know i'm uh, you know i'm from the vhs cd vinyl cassette era so uh the only way for me to get information was through music through subscribing to american hip-hop magazines and stuff like that so so yeah back then i was just like wow okay that's what's going on in the states right but for me it, it was more about the artistic delivery of the music that was really inspirational for me. So the way people would rhyme, the pe- the way people would flow on certain types of beats. And then I would superimpose my thoughts and my ideas in a similar fashion because it was just, everything we were doing was new. There was no you know, reference point, if you will. So we were just kind of creating as we uh, went. Yeah, that's cool. And if you, if you go back to your um, college uh, degree, like what, what did you actually study again? You were studying uh, philosophy and, and ended up in finance? Yeah. So I entered Boston College majoring in business, um, mainly in marketing. And then during that time as well, you know, you, you, it sounded like you, you studied and did your degree because, you know, you've got Asian parents and as good Asian parents do, they want the kids to get an education. Um, was, was there much conflict between you and your parents at that time for you to pursue, I guess, a, a music career? Was it a hard decision for you? I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've got a creative side, which is sort of unknown and you've got another you know, well worn route, going to university, getting a career and a job, nine to five, making your parents happy. Um, how did you sort of rationalize that? And at what point did you sort of say, you know, I'm good enough, I'm going to back myself all in? Well, so when I graduated, I was briefly working in the finance uh, sector and um, I did not like it or I just didn't fit in, <laughs> you know, or, 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 or let's put it, I fit in well. But then um, I wasn't really into the whole work, you know, force. Was this in Japan? 
no, this this was in Boston. Like, so I I, I worked at Smith Barney for a hot minute. Yeah, I was. Uh, it it wasn't really um my thing. Even though, eventually, you know, I would appreciate that space and what it's about. But like, I think for me, you know, I don't go home and dream about it. You know, if you if you will. <laughs> so you know, I I was punching the clock at four thirty. I'm like, okay, when's it going to be five? Kind of thing, right? So yeah. Ah, uh, cool. So 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 when you when you got your first job, so you finished college, got your first job. At that point, rap wasn't on the agenda for you. Yeah, it was it was definitely um not on my bucket list of to dos in life. You know, that first song that I recorded took off. You know, so I was like, cool. And um, first it was for fun, but um, eventually I got asked over and over to make more music. And before I knew it, like the songs that we were recording and releasing and performing were resonating and gaining traction. And, you know, it was charting. So, you know, that kind of got me busy on that end. That's cool. And and what year was this? Like, how long ago was this? This was 97, 98, 99. Like, um, 97, like, I was working. And then, um, yeah, 98 was around the time when I was starting to, like, record and, you know, kind of dabbling with the music. And then by 99, like, it was like, we, we got this uh, record deal with the major. So it, it was like a very, very fast-paced process. That's cool. And at what point did your parents flip the switch and go, yep, we're we're happy to support you now? (laughs) It wasn't for a while. It wasn't until about like maybe 2006. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because uh, for for them, they were kind of embarrassed that I was doing music. They were like, oh, I I told everyone that my son was going to be whatever. (laughs) Like, I don't know, you know. And he's like, he's rapping. (laughs) you know it's like how am i gonna explain how how are you eating and like you know how do you plan your life with that and then by that time i was um i was dating yun from uh who i met in college and she had moved to japan uh, uh so that we could begin this creative unit like this design team so for them they were like oh like you're like rapping and you're bringing your girlfriend to japan and doing design and what the hell are you doing kind of like so that 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 was their kind of vibe they were just not really understanding what i was trying to do but in 2006 or around that time i guess the turning point was when i was on this tv show it was like a national show called kohaku dagasen which is like this uh year-end tv show where the red team and the white team compete against each other. And uh, it, it, it's it's basically like this family show that's been going on for like decades, right? Almost like half century now. And we got this opportunity to get on that show. And that's when my parents were like, my kid made it. So that was like, so since, <laughs> so from that point on, they were like super rooting for me and, really happy with me so like because they thought like because i was on that show i'm actually legit <laughs> that's such an awesome story i'm sure they'd be super proud of you so transitioning to sort of ambush and i was just doing a bit of googling but i think you said you started off you know experimenting and, and making bits and pieces of some jewelry 
things that you would want to wear for yourself and just hand out to friends and stuff like that. What we did was, hey, let's make these gift pieces that we can wear as well as, you know, gift to friends. And we started making them with, you know, different types of metals and we would paint over them. That was the birth of the power rings, the colorful painted power rings. And that was around 2006, 2007. We were kind of giving it out to friends who were, you know, DJs, artists, contemporary artists who are just creative in Tokyo, as well as people who are traveling to Tokyo. This was around the time when a lot of people were, uh, you know, coming to Japan and there was a lot of synergy going on. Like, you know, people were experimenting with music and fashion and, you know, tech as well. So it was a, it was a very exciting time. And I met a lot of people that I'm still friends with to this day around that time. So I would, you know, give them out to people like almost like a business card, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, check this out, you know? And then soon after I would find people wearing it on media and in shows in the States and, you know, all over the world. And that's how subsequently we started getting orders for the to be ambush. This was 20, 2008. So this was just when we decided to call this brand Ambush. Yeah. That's early. And then um, how did you get onto Pharrell? Like I'm a big, I'm a huge Pharrell fan, like sort of grew up with his music and, and the like as well. He's such a cool dude. Yeah. So I met Pharrell through Nigo um, ah. officially. And um, prior to that, they came to Japan as any RD. Yeah. So I went to go watch their first NERD show in Tokyo, but I really got to communicate with them, became, developed a friendship um, through the Teriyaki Boys recording with Nigo. So he produced many songs for us, um, including Tokyo Drift. So yeah, we would be in the studio. We would communicate about obviously music and fashion and everything culture. He was really enthralled with the world that Nigo created. You know, being able to witness that back then was amazing. But to be able to work with him directly was an honor. And it's, it, and it's kind of um, developed my artistic senses to uh, this day. So, you know, I really um, appreciate the opportunity that Nigo gave us. And um, yeah. We first began by making music together. That's super cool. And and I can sort of see um, a lot of similarities between you both as well, right? Because he's got, it seems like he's got a very strong presence in both, obviously, hip-hop, music, and culture, but also in high-end fashion as well, right? He's been doing a lot of stuff with um, some of the biggest brand names like LV, and I think he's doing some stuff with NFTs as well, with doodles and things like that. So there's seems like you guys are sort of crossing over uh, in many different sort of aspects of um, music and fashion, which is really cool. Yeah, he's the the way he works uh is very inspiring. I mean, he's he's the first guy I've ever met who didn't write lyrics on a piece of paper and go into the booth. So he would just like land in Japan, come to the studio, tell us about this track, and he goes, "I got an idea." Goes into the booth, he starts freestyling, done. I was like, "What?" It's like <laughs> 
He's like, how, how did you memorize the lyrics on the way here? He's like, no, I just came up with it. I was like, oh my god! It's like, it's like so, and and he was like, yeah, Jay Z does that, and like, I mean, he was telling me all these stories, and I was like, yo, it's like that was just like um, mind blowing. And then it, it was because he's always, it's almost like practice makes perfect. He's always, always doing music, making music. You know, he always has music with him, always vibing to it in the car or like having people listen to it. Yeah, he's he's you know he's always a student of you know culture. That's why he's able to galvanize so many talent around him and you know energy to be where he is. Yeah, it's um it's really interesting. I mean, just to sort of see you know the open mindedness of people like yourself and obviously Pharrell as well with NFTs, right? I think LV seems like they're moving into NFTs, and obviously he's been doing stuff with Doodles and. And and some of the things that you've been doing with Ambush as well, um, and I've noticed sort of, you've got a, a Web three Ambush version with some NFTs that have been launched, and then obviously Silver Factory. Do you, want, do you want to talk about that a little bit and how they sort of interrelate? Sure. So, like I said, I'm a super noob in this scene, so I just kind of stumbled into this space because of the utility. You know, I didn't I didn't know what this whole crypto space was about. Um, I always had friends around me who were into it, but I didn't see how that applied until um, I got into it through the virtual space, right? So my first intention was to use NFTs as a way to, you know, ticket people into the live shows. But the entertainment space wasn't really ready for that yet, I guess, um, in my environment. So instead, I was like, hey, why don't I make like an access pass? for the fashion audience so we can bridge fashion and web three so that's how i came up with the ambush pow reboot and ambush pow glow in the dark which were the first two collections that we dropped back to back in february and march of 2022 so it was a way for us to have people in fashion get to know about nfts because that was like the big topic right? Everyone's like, what's NFTs? What's metaverse? And I was already really, really into that space and excited to build and introduce to the fashion community. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to jump in. And then with Yun and we're super excited. So we did that. And the first set of NFTs sold out immediately. So we're super excited about that. And in order for you to get the next NFT, which was the POW glow in the dark, you have to have the first NFT, which is a reboot. And you had to go into a metaverse called Silver Factory, which we built with a team called Active Theory in LA. Shout out to Active Theory. And that was a token gated room where you had to have the POW reboot to get yourself to the place to mint the POW glow in the dark. So building that out was super fun. It was like a gamified way of, you know, getting the next drop. So it's almost like lining up in front of a store to get your new sneakers or like the new drop, of the new exclusive item. So people were doing that. All these avatars like bunched up in front of this window and ready to mint. And like, yeah, it was like super, super crazy. So the, a lot, there was a lot of energy there. And yeah, we were able to introduce our world to the people who are more Web3 tech savvy and um you know obviously show case to the fashion world what possibilities there are 
uh, with the Web3 technology. No, that's super cool. And uh, what's, I mean, given we're sort of in the bear market at the moment, I mean, and obviously you're, you're still in the space, big on culture, big on music. I mean, what, what do you make of the Web3 NFT sort of space at the moment? Like, It's kind of good for us. The reason why is because when we first launched, I was super naive. So like I said, we were excited that everything sold out quickly. We're like, wow, amazing. This is like so much traction, so much excitement around it. But also with the excitement and fast-paced nature of the space, people were fudding on our Discord, right? They were just like, yo, why isn't it like 100xing? Like, yo, this is a ripoff. This is a rug. We're like, and all these like uh, Web3 terminologies were like, what, what's, what, I was like, what, what's fudding? I was like, I was like, what's that? It's like, so, so um, I was like, I was kind of coming more from a fashion context. It's like, hey, we're providing people this new service. Like with this NFT, you can get yourself into this room and have exclusive items. It's like with any luxury product, right? Like uh, you have to be like a regular customer or like a special customer to be able to purchase, let's say, like if you wanted to get like a specific watch, like if you're like into AP or like Patek, then you have to be like a certain customer to get like a certain drop. So we thought that having this NFT, you can have access to redeem or purchase. But there was like, we don't want that. It's like, why isn't this NFT in and of itself like blowing up? So we're like, Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, I get it. You know, it's like when we drop our ambush Nikes, people flip. There are people out there who do that. But our intention of creating these products is not for people to flip necessarily. But I was like, okay, I get it. So eventually I started understanding the space more. But, you know, Q3, Q4 of 2022, like it was just like, you know, lots going on, you know, um, FTX happened, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was crazy time. So, uh, by the beginning of this year, when everything was kind of settled down, we were able to sort of focus more on community building and using the web three technology to sort of accelerate the opportunities in the fashion space, which I have always wanted to do. And I felt like people who are around you know, my community in fashion who was interested in Web3, but they weren't into all this broness. I don't know how to say it, but like, they were just like, ah, <laughs> oh, like, I don't really like all this like crypto bro. And like, but I'm like, that's not what it's about, you know? So, um, I mean, it's, it's symbiotic. Like there has to be this financial return aspect that's exciting um, alongside of utility. So they go hand in hand. So I'm not, you know, discrediting or being oblivious to either but i think um by this beginning of this year it was easier for people to kind of hone in on the technology itself and the and the of, of course the different opportunities that come with it and then um one thing you uh, as you mentioned louis vuitton was dropping the trunk nft which was cool last december I had an opportunity to sit on panel with Alexander Arnault, who's the you know CEO of Tiffany's, and he was quite clear on the fact that as a LVMH, they have to be very careful because they can't make mistakes, right? I mean, not that they don't want to experiment, but 
they're more cautious. So when he did the Tiffany's uh, necklace or the you know chain with the punks, that was amazing because there was a certain audience. You know, uh, you have to be a punk. You have to have a punk to token get yourself to get that necklace. I mean, that just made sense. It was like targeted piece, and it was beautiful. So I think. Um, did did you get one? No, I totally missed the opportunity. Yeah, so um, I'm really sour about that. But um, if 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 the slot opens again, I'm definitely getting it. Um, but but that was a uh, that was a really um good foray or like a segue for him to create between the web three and the fashion space. So anyway, going back, yeah. Um, for us, we're still you know marching on and looking for new ways to kind of build. Uh, in this space, and we're just excited. We're building products, uh, leveraging the Web3 technology and, you know, kind of introducing it more and more so that our customers are kind of accustomed to it. Now, that's cool. And love to sort of see that, you know, you're getting into it at the grassroots level, right? Like you're in Discord and you're, you're, you're observing and, and, and figuring out who's the legitimate sort of players in this space, which I don't think a lot of brands spend the time to sort of do. Because I know you've sort of done stuff with uh, Bright Moments and stuff with Ledger and, and things like that as well. But, but maybe just um, going, going back a little bit, um, do you, what was your first NFT? Do you, do you remember what that was? Yeah. So it was, um, it was uh, around the time when I was just getting into it. Um, and it was Daniel Arsham piece on Nifty Gateway. It was May of 2021. So I didn't know anything about NFTs, what to get first. You know, I was listening to a lot of podcasts, but all these names and artists just flew over my head. I didn't get any of them. So I was like, but Daniel told me that he's releasing an NFT. So I'm like, cool. Um, I know Daniel and what he does. Uh, physical work-wise. So let me get his NFT. So I got his uh, eroding and reforming bust of Rome. Um, And, you know, yeah. And it was an edition of like 670 or something like that. And then um, I got one of them and that was my first NFT. Uh, Cool. Daniel's an awesome artist. Um, and, And do you collect art and other collectibles in real life? Like are you a big collector? Yeah, so I'm really into contemporary art. I'm I'm just a collector in general, like sneakers, sunglasses, old toys, and you know sculptures and stuff like that. But yeah, I uh, I'm uh, I collect art. Oh, no. what kind of art do you sort of like collecting the most? Do you have a specific style, or you, you you sort of go for everything? Yeah, so I usually get into it from the story, unless I just fall in love with the visuals or the um, aesthetics of a certain art. So um, I started getting into collecting when I first met Jose Parla, um, who used to be a graffiti artist and now into contemporary art. So shout out to Jose. I was I started getting into collecting from getting Jose's art. I got into Joan Cornelia's pieces because of his kind of dark humor. Um, started collecting his uh, you know, sculptures and stuff like that. Um, some Japanese artists like Hiroshi, because I was a skater back in high school. So um, he uses skateboards as a media to create his sculptures. So I collect Hiroshi, Noguchi Tetsuya. He, his themes are like samurais and old Japanese aesthetics. 
juxtaposed with, you know, modern items or modern themes. So that's really um, fun. So I, 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 again, that's a sculpture as well. Ikeuchi, uh, Matsuyama, but I also collect like um, some older or more, more like, I guess, not as pop art. Like uh, I would collect like Jasper Johns. And but anyway, like, yeah, I just, nice. um, I'm into, yeah. Nice. And it's uh, so just moving on the conversation to CryptoPunks. Like, how do you view CryptoPunks? And are they art or collectible to you? Like, how do you sort of see them? So with my journey in studying NFTs, I, you know, obviously CryptoPunks was like a grail. You know, it was just like um, the NFT that everyone spoke about. And it was an NFT that started almost experimentally, which grew to where it was. And I love the trajectory of CryptoPunks as well as the community around it. So, and, and it has stood out amongst the other NFTs in a way that, you know, I now I see in retrospect, but back then I couldn't really pinpoint why I liked CryptoPunks more than others. But I think CryptoPunks, because it came out so early, the holders were mature, right? They weren't like flipping every day or like um, they weren't trying to, you know, it, it, yeah, it wasn't as fast paced and the environment of the chats, if you will, were a little bit more mature, if you will. And um, people were just sharing cultural information, of course, with trend. Well, um, they would meet in different parts of the world and stuff like that. So it was, it was just very, very interesting and seemed very sophisticated. So that's why I was really into the space. And yeah, when I had the opportunity to get one, it was definitely, I, I felt like, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is the moment. So, so maybe we can talk about that. Like, how did you, you know, what made you buy your first CryptoPunk and how were you thinking about traits uh, with, you know, non 5 So I was looking for a blonde toupee because that's how my hair, that's how I usually <laughs> wear my hair and with sunglasses. <laughs> but usually the blonde traits were like women. And, um, some of the short blonde wasn't really what I was looking for. So I was like, mm, maybe, you know, I was like, you know, I don't want to jump into something that I'm not really feeling, you know? So I was just kind of waiting for the right one or just waiting for it. Cause, cause you kind of like fall into it. Right. Cause I, I think around that time, there's just like lots going on and so many projects to follow. So I was trying to buy in and study, buy in and study mainly like utility-based NFTs so that I could kind of, you know, equip myself or familiarize myself with the tech. But yeah, it was like July of 2022 when I got this one. But I think I was just like listening to um, Prodigy or something. And I was like, yo, that looks like Keith Flint. And it's got sunglasses. I'm like, oh shit, this is it. And I was just like, yeah, I just I just got it. And um, yeah, and I love it. It does look like Keith Flint. Um, now that you mention it, uh, that's super cool. And if if you know money wasn't an issue for you, I'm sure it's probably not. But um, do, do you have like a dream punk that comes to mind? Yeah, I definitely uh, want one with a 3D glasses. Any of them. Uh, I think um, the 3D glasses trait is definitely something that um, I'm always checking out. I check out in the, what's available from time to time. But yeah, that's a, uh, you know, I, I would definitely be interested in one. 
3D is uh, really highly coveted. What what does Yoon think about your punk and NFTs in general? What's her what's her sort of take on it? It's like a eight bit kind of like you know look, but for her that resonated. So she was like really excited that I got this punk. She was like really you know jealous. She was like, I want one too, and you know, um, she was definitely searching for one when I got mine. And um, yeah, for her, I think that utility aspect is really interesting so as i mentioned earlier we're trying to develop products um using the web3 technology we're really looking into the erc6551 and you know creating products where you can start collecting tokens that you can redeem other products with and stuff like that so she's really into that side of things but in terms of the art yeah it's it's there's a few that she's interested in but um yeah, we. She's definitely into the uh, the utility. I think yeah, that's your job now. You got to get you in a punk, and you got to get Pharrell into a punk, um, so they can join yourself <laughs> and and Jay Z in the in the in the punk in the punk universe. That would be amazing. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Pharrell had one already, but he's just not really talking about it. Who knows? That'd be super cool. I mean, if uh, you know uh, Bernard had a few punks in the bag, uh, there, there was. Um, Rumor circulating at the time when you know punks were going up for sale that LVMH might be uh might have been one of the buyers alongside Yuga that was sort of going for it, but um wasn't meant to be. It, it sort of felt like at the time when people started talking about it, like a luxury brand owning crypto punks might have been a better fit. But you know, Yuga's been doing a pretty good job so far. Cool. And uh, if you had to look across our existing punk community, do, do you have like any favorite punks that sort of come to mind for you? I'm actually in a couple different chats and um i i I don't want to specify one per se but i definitely like the tokyo punk scene because everyone i well i don't want to say any everyone but i would say 90 percent of the people in there are not japanese but they have been to japan and live there or they just love japan and the energy in there is really cool um i'm also in like the paris punks chat and other chat as well i'm more like a you know, observer. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the Tokyo punks chat is super dope. So shout out to the Tokyo punks, especially Sean. Um, he's definitely spearheading the combo all the time. You know, he taught me a lot about the space as well. Yeah. Um, I, I really like that community. Yeah. Sean's super, super knowledgeable. He's, uh, he's almost like our internal punk historian, right? So, which is kind of cool. And uh, I think Tony Herrera, I think in his early military days, did a bit of a stint in Japan as well. So I think he, um, he frequents Japan from time to time, which is cool. And the punk claimer. And, and if you had to describe punk culture in a few words, like how would you describe that for you? I think it's a universe in and of itself. Um, it has its own timeline, um, mindful of all the trends going on. I think, like I said, it's mature. So the the excitement is for sophisticated matters. That's what I feel like. And when I say sophisticated, <laughs> I, I don't mean to sound patronizing to like other communities or anything like that. But I feel like the kind of stuff that excites the punk communities isn't what excites other communities where, you know, oh, there's like a, like a you know, <laughs> opportunity to flip here or flip there. Or like, I mean, it's, it's, that's not really the conversation or starter. It's more like, hey, this musician's coming to Tokyo and I'm going to host this event. So 
do you guys want to come? And it's like, you know, a creative synergy happening there because of that, or, you know, um, someone helping each other out for certain business matters. And, you know, I mean, so, so those are some of the things that stick out in the punk community. And I, I kind of like it. It's, it's, it's almost like a forum of like-minded people and, yeah, I feel comfortable there and yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, uh, you know, as sort of speaking to you and, you know, punks on previously on punk cast as well, like mostly everybody's building stuff. Yeah. You know? So, um, and I sort of keep saying this because everyone's building, nobody's got a lot of time to, uh, shit post on Twitter all day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no that, that's, that's the best way to put it. I think people are building. It's like, it's very constructive. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And do you have a view on uh, V1 punks at all? All I know is that when they started, they messed up on the code, so they have to redo it. And by the time they release V2s, like, you know, the V1s, yeah, I I, I wasn't there when it all happened. So I'm only just like, you know, reading back on it and as if it's like history, although it's only like three, four years ago or something. But yeah, I'm, I'm not like a professor on that but it's a very interesting history for sure no that's cool sean bonner's got all the history and he's developed a, a wiki so if you're interested you should definitely sort of check that out yeah and he he's also coming into town with dj mugs uh who's a producer of cypress hill and um he's releasing soul assassins i'm a big fan of dj mugs too so um sean working with him on music projects uh so he's super creative, super knowledgeable. And yeah, I definitely have to ask him about that history. Yeah, Sean's got such a um, an interesting history. I, I didn't ask him or dig in deep enough on the podcast that I had him on, but he was around early days of Twitter. You know, he was hanging out with Tim Ferriss and those guys in the early days, you know, in the early internet days as well. So he's had a super interesting sort of background as well. Um, and very well connected in the music and, and art space. Yeah, he also shout out to him because... Uh, during NFT NYC last year, um, I, I, I had a mutant ape, but I didn't have a board ape. And uh, I didn't know how to sign up to go to the uh, the board ape event last year. So he he hooked me up to get in. So shout out to Sean on that end as well. <laughs> <laughs> shout out, Sean. Um, <laughs> and if you had to, you know, make an assessment of, you know, the, the Uyghur acquisition on punks, like, you know, did it mean anything for you or does it, does it change the way you sort of see punks? Like I kind of follow up on some of these acquisitions that they make. Like recently, I think they acquired roar studios. Like they make metaverses and stuff, but I, I think the web three spaces acquisitions seem very arbitrary. I'm not talking about Yuga per se, but like other entities that kind of acquire at a fast pace to kind of like buff up, their portfolio like uh usually i'm sort of scratching my head thinking like how does that help the ecosystem but for yuga to acquire punks was definitely a great move they were able to buy and they did and i think that's one of the best acquisitions they ever made (laughs) yeah I i think i think they did i'm not sure if they fully understood what they got i'm not sure if punks um sort of fully appreciate the whole acquisitions piece because i think you know punks want to be left alone and independent but i mean you've been doing a really good job just leaving us alone so um which is cool yeah it's like someone bought a basquiat by accident they're just like oh that's like cool art and um bought it 
by accident and like it ended up becoming your you know treasured piece you know <laughs> verbal this is a super fun conversation uh and i guess just one last question before we we duck off but um if, if you could pass on a message to the next owner of 9005 what would you like to say to them enjoy you know enjoy the community enjoy the conversations you have the people you meet um who are the holders and yeah just consume and learn from others um which i have been fortunately been able to do so yeah i would just say enjoy awesome verbal thank you so much for uh, joining an episode of punkcast really privileged to have you on the show privileged to have you as part of the punk community i think um you know your your sort of background around you know skateboarding rap you know, breaking boundaries in, in all sorts of instances, you know, hip hop in Asia and the like as well, and, and really moving everything forward. Uh, it really signals, you know, a lot about yourself and obviously counterculture and, and, uh, and also moving that into Web3, which is very, very punk, in, is punk values in my sort of view as well. But um, just want to sort of say thank you uh, and really appreciate you sort of joining Punkcast and love to grab a beer with you if you're ever in Hong Kong uh, at some stage. But uh, yeah. Thank you for having me, and um, that's a plan to grab the beer. <laughs> and and what's the best way for people to find? Oh, I'm on uh, Instagram, verbal underscore ambush. Same on Twitter, verbal underscore ambush. So yeah, please find me there. Holler at me, send me a message. If you have any ideas or some cool creative concept that you want to share, I'm all ears. Actually, now that you've mentioned it, we have to do some merch for punks. Some verbal slash punks merch or something like that. We have to do that. That would be amazing. Yeah, um, all day. That'd be super fun. So yeah, maybe people could throw ideas my way for like a cool product or cool merch. Awesome. Guys, you heard it here first on Punkcast, so make sure you do that. And guys, that wraps up uh, an episode of Punkcast for the week. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back next week for another punk. Bye for now.